Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Akikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, December the 11th, uh, 2022. We are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in once again to yet another action-packed edition of the Pan-African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the emergence of further details surrounding the passing of Congolese musician and political figure, uh, Shala Mwana, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, She passed away on yesterday. A Libyan uh, man has been arrested and transported to the United States in connection with a bombing which occurred in the United Kingdom decades ago. The South African Constitutional Court has dismissed the motion for reconsideration filed by the family of Chris Hani and the Communist Party on the parole of Hani's assassin. And the Zambian youth killed in Ukraine fighting alongside the Russian military has been returned to the Southern African state. In the second and third hours, we commemorate the 163rd anniversary of the state execution of anti-slavery fighter John Brown. This occurred on December 2nd of 1859. We look back on the historical events leading up to the raid on Harpers Ferry, such as the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, the Missouri Compromise, the Kansas struggle against slavery, the Dred Scott decision, etc., and the role of these developments in contemporary society. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We're going to uh, once again pay tribute uh, to the legendary Congolese Pan-African artist, uh, Shala Muana, uh, who made her transition early yesterday morning on uh, Saturday, December the 10th of 2022. Uh, she was a internationally renowned uh, artist uh, emerging uh, from uh, the southern region of uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And, of course, she became a phenomenon inside the country. And then, of course, during the 1980s, uh, all across uh, the African continent and, of course, in Europe and, indeed, internationally. Let's listen in uh, to uh, Chala Moana, uh, who, in fact, uh, was born as Elizabeth uh, Matakwai. And, of course, uh, she uh, had uh, also been involved in uh, various uh, political struggles that took place. Her contributions uh, to uh, the Congolese music scene was pioneering, paving the way uh, for other uh, Congolese uh, women vocalists, uh, songwriters, and artists to emerge as major artistic and cultural figures. Uh, over uh, the last uh, four decades. Let's listen to Shalom 
Kutonda bakole, kutonda nkumba kutonda nibalela, kutonda ntonto jiwanyi ngalapanga. Ujika ini malwele munu mudwe. Oh, 
Jean-Pierre Sa. Yeba oke oti kinga na welenga sanko yeba papa oti kelinga solo na yo yanto toko yo de disanga na koma kolanda motuka na makolo likola bolingo yo la monanga wapi yo. Mundo, 
Bebeko 
kaka akuduba kamba ne kunani kubwala bwala lubuta utanga bwala chebe chijimu sanka ukole mu mikolo bwa kukeba mudimu na shama kenga na shama bikani madwe Chana 
Yesu Kristo utinjira wa moyo. Wakwe mutatu zambi mupuki ne mwezi wa mana. Unjile yendake ba moyo. Moyo moyo wachendelela. Kangila kunji kuma. Tone kuya yeku.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the music of Shala Moana, and uh, Shala Moana, uh, we're paying tribute to her. Uh, she made her transition on yesterday morning. Uh, her official name, uh, Elizabeth uh, Shala Moana Matikai. Uh she passed away uh, Saturday morning, December 10th, in the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kinshasa. Uh, Claude Mashala, the musician and producer, was the first to break the news of her death. Uh, Moana had been in the hospital for a week 
uh, she succumbed to respiratory complications. Her producer, Michelle, who is also her spouse, uh, said uh, she passed away uh, at uh, 2 a.m. Uh, yesterday, Saturday, December 10th. Uh, he told this to the Standard uh, newspaper, the Democratic Republic of Congo's largest news site, 7 Source 7, reported Saturday that the musician's body was taken to the Sinqua Tenere Hospital morgue in Kinshasa. The outlet further said that Moana's relative, Jean-Marie Gassambo, confirmed to 7 Sure 7 News of her death. Seth Kikuni, a businessman and politician in the Democratic Republic of Congo, who unsuccessfully ran for the presidency in 2018, said on Twitter that Moana, quote, contributed greatly to the Congolese culture, unquote. Pascal Mulegua, a Kinshasa-based journalist with Radio France International, said on Twitter that Moana died in the DRC capital of Kinshasa after, quote, ailing for a while, unquote. Moana, also known uh, by the moniker the Queen of Mutashi, uh, started her music career as a dancer for the band Sheke Sheke Love in 1977. Mutwashi is dance and rhythm from Southeastern Democratic Republic of Congo. It's been popularized over the last several decades by Shala Moana. The multi-award winning musician is famous for several songs such as Karibu Yango, Diso Diso, Coca-Cola, Malu, Shianza, and Shibola. Unlike many artists in uh, the DRC and the larger African continent, the gifted Shala Moana personally wrote her own songs. Described as versatile and charismatic, the artist did not limit herself to the Congolese rumba genre, uh, which is mostly composed in Lingala. In most of her composition and performances, the entertainer sang in her vernacular language of Shiluba. In 1984, uh, Shala Moana left the Democratic Republic of Congo for Paris, France, a then haven for colonists. Congolese musicians are seeking to grow their fan base and also use the most advanced uh, technology to produce their music. She returned to Kinshasa in 1986, uh, where she'd line up a number of concerts to reintroduce herself at home and remind the citizens of her musical powers. Although her concerts were received with enthusiasm, it soon became clear that the alien economy in the Democratic Republic of Congo at the time made it difficult for an artist to make a comfortable living inside the country. Moana nonetheless soldiered on, expanding her fan base in and outside of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Her love for Kenya was evident in the 1990s, making three trips to the country between 1990 and 1996 at the height of her music career's popularity. In 2020, it seemed as if her music career had come to an end after an emergency hospitalization in June of 2020. Reports emerged that she had died. She had immediately issued a statement refuting the death reports. However, uh, she is now confirmed uh, deceased. Uh, she was 64 years old. She remains a musical icon in Africa uh, with at least 30 albums under her name, Shala Moana. Moana was also known by the nickname Mamu National in the Democratic Republic of Congo to mean mother of the nation. And uh, we heard um, an hour of uh, Shala Moana's uh, music from uh, the more recent period of the 2000s, uh, where we heard 
uh, in our previous program, uh, music uh, from uh, the 1980s. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal and other news uh, in the North African state of Libya. A man accused of being involved in making the bomb that destroyed the Pan Am Flight 103 over the town of Lockerbie in December of 1988 is now in the United States custody. Authorities in the United States and Scotland said earlier today the charge of Abu Adili Mohammed uh, Masood Kier al-Marimi for his alleged involvement in the bombing. Uh, two years ago, a spokesman for the UK Crown Office and Prosecutor's Fiscal Service told uh, the cable news network the attack killed 270 people as the bomb detonated over the Scottish town as it flew from London to New York. The United States Justice Department issued a statement uh, earlier this morning confirming that the U.S. had taken custody of alleged Pan Am Flight 103 bomb maker Abu Adili Mohammed Maksud Kira al-Marimi, saying he is expected to make his initial appearance in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, according to a spokesperson. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. The Constitutional Court in the Republic of South Africa has dismissed uh, Dempo Hani and the South African Communist Party's application to revoke and reconsider its decision to release Chris Hani's killer, Janus Valas, uh, from prison on parole. Valas uh, was released on Wednesday after the Constitutional Court ruled that he should be released on parole. The South African Communist Party and Hani's widower have on several occasions voiced their dissatisfaction with the Apex Court's decision to grant Wallace parole. In their application to have Wallace released from prison reversed, the SACP and Hani argued that the court's judgment had a patent error. They said the Constitutional Court did not fully analyze the applicant's submission, but the court dismissed the application and uh, to have Wallace released, uh, reconsidered. The Apex Court said that the South African Communist Party and Hani failed to make a case for the court to reconsider Wallace's release. The court further mentioned that it noted an overlap between the Justice Minister Ronald Lamola and the SACP's application to oppose Wallace's release. Wallace is out on parole, and the Constitutional Court remains firm in its decision to grant him parole. And, of course, uh, finally, the body of a 23-year-old Zambian student who died while fighting for the Russian army in the war in Ukraine has been returned home. The body of Limikani Nairenda, uh, who was studying nuclear engineering in Russia before joining the military, arrived at Kenneth Kaunda International Airport in Lusaka earlier today. Although he had been a student, uh, Lemon Kani uh, was convicted of drug trafficking in April of 2020 and sentenced to nine years in prison. He was later pardoned through a special amnesty on condition that he participated in the war and he was killed while fighting in Ukraine. Zambia's government has requested that Russian authorities give detail of Lamakani's demise. Foreign Affairs uh, Stanley Kakubu uh, said, uh, we were told that on August 23rd he was conditionally pardoned and was allowed to participate in a special military operation in which he was timber, said Kakubu in a statement. Quote, we then demanded that officials provide details, not just of his recruitment, unquote. 
He said that DNA tests to confirm his identity have been conducted and Russian compensation will be given to his family. Uh, Zambia will work uh, to ensure that nothing like this happens again. To a Zambian studying in Russia, uh, there are no other Zambians in Russian prisons, said Kakubu. And uh, with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, this special uh, worldwide uh, radio broadcast, uh, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, the programs uh, can uh, be shared uh, with other potential listeners by really copying and pasting the links into emails on other blogs and websites, as well as sharing the links through social media networks such as Facebook and Twitter. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the voice of uh, Barbara Mason and uh, how it hurts. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, December 11th, uh, 2022. And this uh, month represents the 163rd anniversary of the execution, state execution of uh, John Brown, the anti-slavery abolitionist fighter who took up arms uh, to end slavery inside the United States, uh, launching an attack on Harpers Ferry in August of 1859. And of course, uh, leading up to that, uh, there were numerous uh, historical events which were critical uh, in uh, the attack on Harpers Ferry and also uh, the succession of uh, numerous uh, southern states as well as the commencement of the Civil War, which lasted between 1861 and 1865. And, uh, of course, uh, we're going to have a lecture, in fact, uh, two lectures uh, by uh, Yale University uh, Professor David Blight. Uh, The first one will give historical context to the upcoming uh, role of uh, John Brown uh, and his uh, comrades uh, at um, Harpers Ferry in 1859. Uh, This one... Uh, lecture deals with uh, the developments uh, surrounding uh, Kansas and the struggle that John Brown participated in to uh, ensure that Kansas would not become a slave state and also the Dred Scott decision of 1857, the Kansas campaign of 1856, and the impending crisis of the Union. Uh, This lecture deals with the period between 1855 and 1858. Let's listen in. And you're listening to the Pan African Journal Special Worldwide Radio Broadcast. 1854, in an outdoor park in Framingham, Massachusetts, which is 15, 20 miles west of Boston. William Lloyd Garrison and the Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society built a stage. They had a huge turnout, and Garrison and his group performed an act of abolitionist theater. Anthony Burns had just been returned to slavery in Virginia. Kansas-Nebraska Act had just been passed in the month of May. Behind him on the stage, huge uh, array, was first the insignia of the state of Virginia, then an insignia of the state of Massachusetts, a banner on one side that read, Redeem Massachusetts. Hanging from that sign was something labeled the Crepe of Servitude. Nothing very subtle about this. And two flags were on either side of the rostrum, one labeled Kansas and the other labeled Nebraska. And behind Garrison was a very large United States flag upside down. Now, this was political theater, directed by a man who, uh, as you remember, denounced political parties. 
said that uh, participation in political parties was complicity, was complicity with slavery. Garrison first read from Scripture, Old Testament, Deuteronomy. Then he proceeded to, in three segments, to burn documents. He first held up in his hand what he said was a copy of the Fugitive Slave Act, which he burned in his hand with a lighted match, threw the ashes on the floor, stomped on the ashes, and the crowd shouted, Amen. Then he held in his hands the documents for the rendition. He said it was a copy of the document for the rendition of Anthony Burns, returning Burns as a fugitive slave to Virginia. He burned that, threw the ashes on the floor, stomped on them, and the crowd shouted, Amen. Then he pulled out a copy of the United States Constitution, which he announced, as he had announced many times over in his newspaper, The Liberator. He called it a, quote, covenant with death, an agreement with hell, so perish all compromisers with tyranny. He burned it, famously or infamously, stomped on the ashes all over the stage, and the crowd shouted, Amen. The Kansas-Nebraska Act had fueled a political fervor that now could never be um, bottled up again. It could never be uh, put back in its shell. Why? Why was that fugitive, excuse me, that Kansas-Nebraska Act so troublesome? Let me pick that up where I left you off the other day. Now, remember, the Kansas-Nebraska Act had two simple resolutions, although it came about through uh, a heightening process. The first was that it explicitly repealed the 3630 parallel or Missouri Compromise line, what Northerners, anti-slavery abolitionists, or even in some cases hardly aware of slavery, Northerners had always referred to as the, quote, sacred pledge. That sacred pledge was now 34 years old. Everybody in the United States Congress had grown up with it. It was a template. It was an assumption. Not unlike you could name certain great resolutions or assumptions that became almost standard parts of American political culture, perhaps in your lifetime, certainly in my lifetime. Certain aspects of the New Deal, we thought, were basic American political assumptions, like Social Security. But recently, that one got challenged. You can think of others. The right to collective bargaining out of the Wagner Act in the 1930s. You can think of others. Some would say Roe v. Wade. Some would say affirmative action. Some would say other aspects of our political culture born of the 1960s. Some would say the 64 Civil Rights Act, etc. 
the Missouri Compromise line, as people imagined this slavery question in the West, had been seen by Northerners as, quote, a sacred pledge. That was now repealed explicitly in this very sectionalized, divided vote in the Kansas-Nebraska Act to set up the Kansas-Nebraska territories. The second part was, of course, a declaration that any state produced, created from Kansas and Nebraska would be created on a principle of popular sovereignty. There would be a popular referendum at some stage in the territorial process to be worked out later. It passed the U.S. Senate 37 to 14. That's in great part because the Kansas-Nebraska Act became an absolute test of Democratic Party loyalty, which Stephen Douglas demanded. He didn't get all Democrats to support it, but he got most of them. And the Whig Party, by 1864, in what was still a fledgling two-party system now, greatly challenged by a third party called the American Party, or known more euphemistically as the Know-Nothing Party, or known more directly as the Nativist Party, more on that in a moment, is really challenging that third-party system, that two-party system. But it was that vote in the House that I showed you on a graphic the other day that tells you the story. It passed the House of Representatives 113 to 110 in a highly sectionalized vote. Ninety percent of all Southerners on Kansas, Nebraska voted for it. Sixty-four percent of all Northerners, people from free states, voted against it. The American, the second American party system born out of the struggle over Jacksonian, so-called Jacksonian democracy from the 1820s into the 30s, into the 40s, into the early 50s, was now disintegrating faster than most people even really realized. The effects of this were quickly this. The Kansas-Nebraska Act now threw open the vast expanse of what was left of the Louisiana Purchase to the possible expansion of slavery. Secondly, it will destroy the Whig Party forever and, and open a huge vacuum in American political culture for some kind of new coalition, some kind of new persuasion that would fill it about this great question of its time, the expansion of slavery. And then more directly, third, it brought overnight the birth of the Republican Party, the original Republican Party, I hasten to add, a party formed literally overnight in reaction to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It was often first called the Anti-Kansas Party. There are three or four towns all over the Midwest in the United States, Ripon, Wisconsin, Jackson, Michigan, and others that all claim to be the site of the birth of the Republican Party. And they all have their little monuments or their plaques in town squares and parks to say they were the place where the first Republican Party meeting was held. But the Republican Party was really born amidst hundreds of meetings across the North to discuss the Kansas-Nebraska Act, to react to it, to figure out some way to politically resist it, That hell of a storm that Stephen Douglas had predicted is exactly what happened, but he didn't have any clue. The 
direction or the ferocity of the political storm that this would cause. To so many Northerners now, who believed, who, for whom the American dream was mobility in the West, availability of cheap if not free land in the West, the possibility of the small farmer, the small mechanic moving West and getting land in a society without slaves now seemed to be completely thrown up in the air, if not denied. I don't know what to really compare it to today that might shock people. Something you assumed was just going to be there. And tomorrow, it's not. It's just gone. And you basically define the future of your children on it. Lots of people now wondered, uh, you know, what happened to the Compromise of 1850? Well, that was uh, essentially a dead letter. And what was born in that Republican Party, what was born in those meetings that formed the Republican Party in the summer of 1854 was a theory, an idea they called the slave power conspiracy. It actually wasn't born there. That's an old idea. The idea of a slave power. Let me zoom on this a bit. Ah, oh, cool. I could become a techie before this course is over. But the idea of a slave power, this notion of a, some kind of conspiracy, a cadre, an oligarchy, a small number of great planters in the Deep South who nevertheless had tremendously disproportionate power over their own states, over their own region, and then in the Congress and in the Supreme Court and in the presidency, was an old idea. I found it as early as the 1820s in an old, old article I once wrote where people were actually already using the term the slave power. But it really crystallized in the 1850s. This is a poster, um, one of hundreds, thousands of posters from 1854 uh, calling for a meeting. It doesn't even use the term Republican Party anywhere. It's just calling people together. It's in Chester, Pennsylvania, I think just calling people together to discuss the Kansas-Nebraska Act, to discuss what's really happened here, and to uh, discuss the slave power. Classic 19th century broadside with, you know, eight things going on at once in front of your eyes, but the boldest print is reserved for the slave power. Fear. A conspiracy. Come together. Watch out. Get ready. The fear now, you see, think closely about this, to Northerners was, now wait a second, if what the Kansas-Nebraska Act is saying is that the Louisiana, all the rest of the Louisiana Purchase is now open to the possible expansion of slavery, it's got to be rooted in a constitutional theory that probably is supporting that Fifth Amendment, which is the right to life, liberty, and property, and the transport of that property anywhere you want. So what's to stop... Someday, somehow, slaveholders are coming into Illinois, Ohio, New York, Boston. Might seem a bit far-fetched, but editorials started appearing all over the North, like this one from the New York Post. 
that predicted, quote, gangs of men and women chained together may yet be seen now marching up or down Broadway or trembling in Battery Park. What was born in that summer, and especially that fall, was the most rapid third-party political coalition movement in all of American history, and if you want a prototype for any possibility of that kind any other time in our political history, this is it. The Republican Party, brand new, not six months old, will elect 100 people to the House of Representatives in the fall elections of 1854. And they will begin to draw together a remarkable coalition. They're going to draw first a whole lot of old, old Whigs, northern Whigs in particular, who don't have any home anymore. This is the old Whig party of Henry Clay, but it's also the old Whig party that had a reformist element to it. This is the old John Quincy Adams wing of the Whig party. And there were some Whigs who had become genuine abolitionists in many states. And they now were looking for a real political home in which to plant their flag of not just free soil, but a moral case against slavery. You got the old free soilers. The free soil party had existed in 1848 and the 1852 elections. Remember, I told you they elected, the, what was it, four people to the House of Representatives. But more importantly... That Republican Party now had tremendous, we're calling it now crossover, aren't we? Tremendous crossover appeal to Northern Democrats, lifelong Northern Democrats, who will now break with Stephen Douglas, break with popular sovereignty, break with their own political lives, and join a new free soil anti-slavery party. David Wilmot, the author of the Wilmot Proviso, you'll remember from a week ago, that Pennsylvania Democrat who launched this idea during the debates on the Mexican War that said in any territory, any state form from a territory gained from the Mexican War, slavery shall never exist, the basic free soil position. In 1854, David Wilmot became a Republican. This new political coalition, fledgling as it was, a lot of strange bedfellows here, guys who had just fought like hell with each other for years in the Congress, we're now kind of forming the same party. They're forming it around a few key ideas. One is this, this notion, this, you know, this idea of a slave power that has to be resisted now. Uh, as a political force, it has to be resisted. As an expansionist migration force, it has to be resisted. As a labor system, it has to be resisted. And secondly, they are rooting their political future and ideology in what they're calling, quite explicitly now, and they've rehearsed this, many of them for some years, an anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. They're going to now really rehearse publicly the idea that, yes, Slavery may be protected constitutionally where it already exists because slaves are legally property. Okay, we've heard that for decades, they're going to say. But the federal government has jurisdiction over territories. It has jurisdiction over the District of Columbia. And the slogan that flows from this idea of, a, of an anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution is 
make freedom national slavery sectional. That slavery shall forever be, they say, a regional, sectional, local institution, not a national institution, which was an implicit way of saying the West shall be kept free for free labor at all costs. And then thirdly, the Republican Party is rooted, and this is why it could become a coalition, it's rooted in this cluster of ideas we've come to call here, and Bruce Levine's book is terrific on this, a free labor ideology. A fear of concentrated power. The defense of the individual, the small man. It was a fanfare for the common man. The small farmer, the small clerk. The small, small in the sense of he has nothing. He may own nothing, but he wants to own something. It's the immigrant with nothing who wants to own a farm. And he must have, at least in this America of its boundless West, he must have physical mobility, geographical mobility. And historians have come to define all this, of course, under uh, this, this cluster of notions we call republicanism. The belief that the United States was, if not a democracy, at least a republic. Where the people rule where consent of a majority really counts. And if that majority is increasingly becoming small farmers and clerks and mechanics and a lot of them immigrants, then oligarchies ought to be put on the run, whether those oligarchies are bankers or those oligarchies are made up of slaveholders. This was, in its birth and for the next six years, one of the most potent political coalition ideologies this country has ever seen. Now, what happens next? What happens to this new coalition? And why are they going to be so threatening to the South? This, in some ways, is going to become the planter elite Southern slaveholding class's greatest fear. A genuine Yankee anti-slavery northern political party. After all, the North now has close to pushing a two-to-one advantage in population. That is, if we simply define that by free states, slave states. Now... Oh, I better zoom back here. Maybe you've seen this picture before. It's the uh, it's a lithograph of the famous beating of Charles Sumner in the spring of 1856 on the floor of the U.S. Senate by Preston Brooks. But how do we get to a scene in the U.S. Senate of a Southern congressman? beating the hell out of, a, out of a Massachusetts senator, beating him literally unconscious, uh, bloodying him on the floor of the Senate while his fellow senators looked on, and some of them in glee. 
There were 91 Northern Democrats in the House of Representatives when they voted on the Kansas-Nebraska Act. After the fall elections of 1854, there were only 25 left. This is a political sea change happening, and no one quite knows where it's going yet. And in that same year of 1854, this nativist party, they called themselves the American Party, a party that stood essentially for trying to stop Catholic, namely Catholic, immigration into the United States. This was the, this was the moment, of course. And you look around today, we've got a huge debate going on about immigration, and I won't go into that, but you can see how it's clustering in parts of our political culture. Heighten that six times over to the early 1850s. The huge Irish migrations to the United States had just happened between the mid-1840s, especially the late 1840s, and about 1852 to 54. This is the moment, the historical moment, of the terrible, infamous potato famine in Ireland. The Nativist Party was anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, they believed that Catholicism would undermine American Protestant values and the Protestant work ethic. Um, they believed that the United States of America ought to be a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant nation as it was in its founding. They believed in a conspiracy of popery, crazy as that may seem to some of us today. They believed that Catholics owed and demonstrated a higher loyalty to the Pope in Rome than they ever would in the United States to the United States government, and therefore Catholics could not be true Republicans. I know, give me a break. But it is what this party was rooted in. And man, did they succeed. They won huge uh, electoral victories in the fall of 1854, particularly because there's this new vacuum now. The Whig Party's dead. By 1856, in the presidential election of 56, the uh, nativist American Party candidate will win over 800,000 votes for the presidency. More on that in a second. The American Party won 40 seats in the U.S. Congress in 1854. They dominated a few northern state legislatures. They won the governorship of, of, of Massachusetts and a majority of its legislature. It shocked people. It shocked some northern Democrats who weren't comfortable with this nativism, the virulence of this nativism, to become Republicans instead. Now, out west, of course, what's going to happen to Kansas and Nebraska? Kansas now became the object of tremendous migration. It was nothing but a series of frontier settlements in 1855, but, pop, but, but large numbers of people began to go there. These were the so-called squatters, squatter farmers. But immediately it became a contest between how many Yankees and Northerners would actually get there and try to make the place free soil, and how many Southerners would actually get there with slaves and try to produce a pro-slavery constitution. Kansas became the great testing ground of popular sovereignty. 
immigrant aid societies emerged, especially in New England, one famous one that had a lot of financial backing behind it called the New England Immigrant Aid Society. They recruited settlers, they raised money, they paid people's way out to Kansas in some cases. Kansas now became a kind of symbol and reality. Out on its border, of course, its eastern border was the state of Missouri, which was a slave state. And Missourians began to flock across the border into Kansas, taking land. By March of 1855, only one year, less than a year, 11 months after the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, they held their first election for a territorial legislature in the, in the territory of Kansas. An estimated 5,000 so-called border ruffians, or that meant Missourians, flocked over into Kansas for a day or two to vote. The census, they took a rapid census in the early spring of 1855 in Kansas, recorded 2,905 eligible voters in all of Kansas. In that territorial legislature election, 6,307 people voted. Way more than half of the people registered to vote voted. Uh, something was wrong. They elected a pro-slavery legislature, adopted a pro-slavery constitution overnight, and free soilers cried foul, formed their own attempt at a government that summer, and by January of 1856, the beginning of the next year, in a sense, in essence, there were two fledgling territorial governments in Kansas. One free soil, one pro-slavery. And it was then that spring of 1856 that what we call Bleeding Kansas, this border frontier civil war, this village against village, uh, river ravine against river ravine, broke out. Before it played out over about a year and a half, about 250 people would be killed, many of them in nighttime raids and vigilante violence, and millions in treasure. I will come back to John Brown later, uh, in next week in fact. Our friend John Brown from upstate New York, or somebody's friend, he wasn't easy to be friends with, had already sent out some of his sons, more on that later, and John Brown arrived himself in the winter of 1856. John Brown, a genuine, radical, deeply religious Old Testament abolitionist, who went to Kansas, make no mistake, to make Kansas free and to kill slaveholders if necessary in what he believed was a justifiable war. That spring, John Brown, with his band of men, was traveling along the road when he got news of the beating of Charles Sumner in the Senate. What happened in the Senate is that Charles Sumner, the Radical abolitionist senator from Massachusetts, one of only a tiny handful, actually one of only two or three, three or four, real card-carrying abolitionists, if we wouldn't want to call them that, who had seats in the U.S. Senate. 
Sumner, a deeply well-educated, classically educated Harvard man, began his political life as a so-called conscience Whig in Massachusetts. He got elected to the U.S. Senate in the fervor over the Mexican War and in the fervor over the expansion of slavery. In his first few years in the Senate, from 1849, 50, 51, 52, uh, they had a virtual gag on him. Anytime Sumner tried to get the floor, this went on for about four years, there were all kinds of parliamentary maneuvers that the opposition could use to prevent him from speaking. They didn't want abolitionist rhetoric in the halls of the U.S. Senate. But with time, he got a position, that is, a, a, a place where he could speak in the Senate's calendar. And he did. He delivered a speech early that spring called The Crime Against Kansas. He delivered it in March 1856. It took him about six hours. It was later published in a pamphlet form that's about 35, 40 pages. It was the classic free soil argument of what was now the Republican Party, and Sumner was by now, of course, a Republican. Uh, he made all the arguments about a slave power conspiracy and an anti-slavery interpretation of the Constitution. He argued deeply into, the, into, the, into that cluster of ideas we call free uh, labor ideology. But then he laced the speech over and over with personal attacks on Southerners, personal attacks on Southern slaveholders. He singled out especially Senator Andrew Butler of South Carolina. And he used Butler's alleged fathering of children by a slave woman as representative of what Sumner said was a common practice across the South. You could not imagine laying a bigger taboo on your fellow Southern senators than this one. He described Butler as, quote, a Don Quixote who had taken the harlot slavery as his mistress. And then he went on and on with that. He was jeered. Southerners started shouting at him, and Sumner just enjoyed it and went on. Many of them walked out. But he'd already had copies of the speech printed. He had speech, copies of the speech on the street within a few days. In the audience that day, sitting up in the balcony, was a member of the U.S. House of Representatives named Preston Brooks, who was the nephew of Senator Butler. About a week after this event, maybe in two weeks, Butler decided that he was going to have honor. He was going to exercise uh, an act of honor and revenge uh, deeply rooted in what he believed was uh, the Old South's sense of honor. He had thought about challenging Sumner to a duel, but duels by this point in time were highly illegal, even though people did get challenged. I read my colleague uh, Joanne Freeman on this. They're still challenging each other to duels all the time in the 1850s. Well, a lot of times. But he decided against challenging Sumner to a duel. Instead, he thought he would take a sort of plan B. He would meet Sumner at his desk with a cane and try to kill him. And he did. Uh, Brooks took a cane to Sumner. Sumner was sitting at his desk literally signing copies of the Crime Against Kansas speech to be sent out. 
And he got trapped in the desk, we're told. He couldn't get out of it, and Brooks just kept banging on his head over and over until he bloodied him into unconsciousness, and Sumner fell on the floor. And there are all kinds of stories. And in fact, this lithograph tries to capture it, although I'm not sure you can see it very well. There are all kinds of stories about senators, especially Southerners, gathering around saying, you know, hold me back, hold me back, as they smiled and watched Sumner bleed on the floor. And finally, somebody grabbed Brooks' cane and said, you know, that's probably enough. I mean, by any definition, this was an assault with a deadly weapon. This was an assault and battery. This was attempted murder. Preston Brooks went back to the House of Representatives, tendered his resignation, and said he would go back home to South Carolina and submit himself to the people of his district. And he did. And they overwhelmingly reelected him. He also received more than 100 commemorative canes in the mail, some of which you can see today at the Carolinianna um, Library in Columbia, South Carolina. This became, of course, a cause celeb, um, a brutal example now of the way in which compromise was being ruined, a uh, middle realm for moderation was perhaps being destroyed. Violence had broken out all over Kansas. Violence had now broken out in the U.S. Senate. It led many people to a fearful set of expressions. There are literally hundreds of these in the press. Uh, this is one from William Cullen Bryant, who uh, wrote in the New York Evening Post, after the news broke of the beating of Sumner, I quote him, violence reigns in the streets of Washington, violence has now found its way into the Senate chamber, violence lies in wait all over the navigable rivers and all the railways of Missouri to obstruct those who pass from the, from the free states into Kansas, violence overhangs the frontiers of that territory like a storm cloud charged with hail and lightning. Violence has carried election after election in that territory. In short, violence is the order of the day. The North is to be pushed to the wall by it, and this plot will succeed if the people of the free states are as apathetic as the slaveholders are insolent. It was news of the beating of Sumner on the floor of the Senate that apparently made John Brown snap. And within 48 hours, he led the what's called the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre, um, where he murdered five pro-slavery advocates in cold blood with broadswords in the dark of the night. We will return to John Brown's exploits next week. Now, that year was, though, a presidential election year. And the problem is still just laying there out on the landscape. What is to happen with Kansas, Nebraska? What's to be done with bleeding Kansas? What's to be done with... Oops, sorry. Oh, there. Now, in that election of 1856, this is terribly important. To note for a moment, the Republican Party will mount its first effort at the presidency. 
in it all but in it all but one. This had never happened in American history till then. It's never happened since. A new third party that comes so close to winning. The platform of the Republican Party in 1856 was, if anything, slightly more radical than it had been in two years earlier in those congressional elections of 1854. They took a staunch stand about slavery expansion. They took a staunch stand on keeping Kansas free. They announced directly that they would, quote, destroy slavery wherever federal jurisdiction reigned. For president, they ran John C. Fremont, a young, dashing, romantic, heroic type. He had been one of the great surveyors and explorers of the West. He was already known by the nickname the Pathfinder, and he was the first senator from the state of California. He's also the son-in-law of Thomas Hart Benton, a very powerful, now Republican from Missouri. He, he was well-married, well-connected, and good-looking. They centered their campaign. They borrowed Sumner's own language. And they centered their campaign on what the Republican Party itself now called the crime against Kansas. They were also for tariffs, for the Transcontinental Railroad across the West, and so on. The American Party, known as the Know-Nothings, by the way, because in their origins, if you didn't know this about the Know-Nothings, in their origins, the American Nativist Party tried to maintain a secrecy. They were a kind of secret society at first. And when asked who they were and how they met and what they were for, their original members would always say they knew nothing. So whenever you hear that term, know-nothingism, in American politics, if somebody throws it, you know, if Chris Matthews throws that term off at you, showing off his political history knowledge, it usually means nativism, or it means some kind of third-party phenomenon. The know-nothings nominated that year Millard Fillmore, pre former president. He'd been the president during the Compromise of 1850. It was a very strange choice. And the Know-Nothings were now in some trouble because of this powerful new Republican coalition, which is managing now to draw some of the nativists into them because it turns out some nativists were actually more afraid of the slaveholding oligarchy than they were of this Catholic conspiracy. If they had to choose conspiracies, they were a little more frightened of slaveholders than popes. The Democrats went safe they chose a largely incompetent James Buchanan to run for president. He was from Pennsylvania, you know, kind of lower north. He was known to have very strong ties to the south and to be a, what Republicans are already calling a doughface, which meant a northerner with southern sympathies. And he had been the United States ambassador to Britain during the Kansas-Nebraska crisis, so he had never voted on it. He had no position to defend. It was a highly sectionalized election. Buchanan carried every slave state except Maryland. And then he carried New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Illinois, and California. 
The Democratic Party was still a national party. Fremont, the Republican, carried the rest of the free states and New England decisively. Fremont and Fillmore together, and Fillmore, the nativist candidate, got 850,000 votes. Buchanan, about 1.8 million. Fremont, about 1.5, 1.6 million. No, no, 1.3 million. If the nativist party had not been in this election, and if most of the nativists had gone to Fremont, the Republican, or even two-thirds of them, Fremont would have won the presidency. This anti-slavery northern coalition of free soil advocates came very close. They would even call it in its wake a victory within defeat for such a brand new political party. Now out in Kansas, they're still trying to hold elections. One corrupt, fraudulent election after another. Buchanan took office in the spring of 57. He appointed a new governor for the territory of Kansas named Robert J. Walker, whose job it was going to, he was a solid Pennsylvania Democrat, but nevertheless said, I will go out there and enforce popular sovereignty. We're going to have a true free ballot in Kansas. Popular sovereignty is still going to work. The trouble was, popular sovereignty was now dead in the water. It was tainted at best. In the election of delegates to yet another attempt at a state constitutional writing convention in Kansas in the fall of 1857, the Free Soilers boycotted the election. So at Lecompton, Kansas, and hence the term the Lecompton Constitution, a pro-slavery constitutional convention met with the Free Soilers all boycotting, and they drafted, no mistake, a pro-slavery constitution. It protected slavery and the right to slave ownership eternally, forever, in the state of Kansas. It excluded from residents in the state of Kansas any free Negroes. And it said that it could not be amended in any way for seven years. This process had taken drastic liberties with the idea of popular sovereignty, which, as you'll remember, was the idea you're supposed to have a popular referendum and just let the vote determine whether slavery shall exist. This Governor Walker lost control of the territory. Violence continued. Terrible violence. And Walker came back to Washington, urged his own president, who had appointed him, to not support this Lecompton Constitution. He said, it's just, it's not right. It's just too fraudulent. It was boycotted by half of the people, probably more than half the people. And Buchanan made a fateful decision. He said, no, nope. they've had their popular sovereignty. They've had their constitutional writing convention. If the Free Soldiers chose not to participate, that's the way it goes. And Buchanan took the Lecompton Constitution to Congress and asked for its approval of Kansas as a slave state. Buchanan took huge political risks here and didn't, for, for all practical purposes, apparently know what he was doing. 
And here we begin to see now the breakup, the tearing apart now of even the Democratic Party, because none other than Stephen Douglas, father of popular sovereignty, author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, uh, the man who had, who, had, who had pushed that act through, went to Buchanan and said, no, sir, you cannot support the Lecompte Constitution. It's a fraudulent constitution. The majority of the people in that territory are probably free soil. You can't do this. He broke with his own president, and it would be disastrous for the Democratic Party. The Compton Constitution was not accepted by the Congress. Now, the Dred Scott decision, which came down that same spring of 1857 in the immediate aftermath of Buchanan's election, there's old Dred. Not a great picture of him, but it's the only photograph we have of Dred Scott. The Dred Scott decision also came down in the midst of a major American depression. The so-called Panic of 1857 broke out that very spring. Same time as the Buchanan is being inaugurated, the Compton Constitution is being forged out in Kansas, the Dred Scott decision is going to be announced, the country is falling into a horrible economic panic. There are many causes of it. I wish I had the time. Actually, I'm going to save the Panic of 1857 because it sets up Lincoln and Douglas in 58-59 for me later. But I want to leave you. I've got three minutes, I think. Two minutes? Two, three. With this fateful Supreme Court case, many people like to say the worst Supreme Court decision in all of American history. But I suspect you can get up a debate over that. I think we've had a couple others. I won't name them. Who was Dred Scott? This man, who was an old man by the time the Supreme Court ruled on him and put his name forever into American history as a symbol, was born a slave in 1795 in Virginia. He had moved to Missouri in the 1820s with his master. A man, his original master's name was Peter Blow. He was then later owned by a physician, a doctor named John Emerson. Emerson was an army surgeon. And Emerson traveled from Missouri all over the upper uh, Midwest and into what then was the Great Plains as an army surgeon working at army camps and bases. Dred Scott went with him as his personal servant. They traveled to Illinois and Minnesota. Dred Scott lived with his master from 1834 to 1838, four years, with Dr. Emerson on various kinds of military bases, especially in Minnesota, a free territory. At one point, Dred Scott tried to buy his own freedom in Minnesota. and wasn't allowed to do it. He married a free black woman named Harriet while he was in Minnesota. Four years' residence on free soil, an attempt to buy his own freedom, marries a free black woman. Emerson brought him back to Missouri in 1838, and through uh, an, an intricate series of events, 
for the next five to six years, not the least of which was Missouri is a very divided place, especially St. Louis. A group of anti-slavery folk gathered around Dred Scott and tried to help him sue for his freedom. In 1846, they moved his case through local courts, and the first decision was that a local court, because of his residence on free soil for four years, gave Dred Scott his freedom. That court decided the case in 1850. It was then appealed by the state of Missouri, which was really worried about this case, to the Missouri Supreme Court. And the Missouri Supreme Court, by a decision of two to one, ruled, no, 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 on appeal, Dred Scott's freedom would be denied. That he, would, that he did not have the right to his freedom because of residence on free soil. Then again, with the help of an anti-slavery group, and even his own owner, believe it or not, they pushed this appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Dr. Emerson was gone. Dredd was now owned by a man named John Sanford, and hence the case was called Sanford versus Scott. Scott's case came before the U.S. Supreme Court as early as 1854. It got on the docket. It would not be decided for two and a half years. Most people didn't even know this was happening. But I'll leave you here. Only three days after James Buchanan was inaugurated president, having just only narrowly defeated this new Republican coalition, news broke in Washington of something called the Dred Scott decision. And it would electrify the political culture of the country. It will fuel this Republican Party anti-slavery coalition as much as, in some places, as much as the Kansas-Nebraska Act ever had, and it will inspire Abraham Lincoln to run for the Senate. That's it for now. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Professor David Blight uh, from uh, Yale University discussing uh, the Dred Scott decision, uh, the Missouri Compromise, uh, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and, of course, uh, the Dred Scott decision. Uh, and uh, we're going to take a break. We'll go back uh, to discuss further uh, the evolution of John Brown. This is the uh, this month represents the 163rd anniversary of the execution of John Brown after the raid on Harpers Ferry. Uh, the raid was designed uh, to liberate uh, African people from enslavement inside the United States to initiate a revolutionary war to end slavery. Of course, that war did happen uh, beginning in 1861. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Yes, he did. And he walked past the eyes of my life. And he nodded and sang without Familiarly came round a dead man. 
Welcome back to uh, the voice of Elaine Brown uh, with the song entitled The Meeting. And uh, right now we want to move in, back into our, our reexamination and recognition of uh, John Brown. Uh, this month uh, represents the 163rd anniversary of the state execution of John Brown due to his involvement in the armed insurrection, the attack on uh, Harpers Ferry designed to initiate a revolutionary war to end enslavement of African people in the United States. Let's go back uh, to uh, David Blight's lecture on John Brown and the Holy War. On a morning in the second week of March, 1857, Americans grew up living. They didn't all quite understand it yet, but they grew up living in the land of the Dred Scott decision. And if you were African-American, that really meant something. Now, 1857 is, of course, the final year of the playing out of Bleeding Kansas, and we'll return to that in just a second. And we're going to discuss mostly today uh, the story of one abolitionist, you could say the most famous abolitionist, certainly the most notorious American abolitionist, John Brown. John Brown never made it easy for people to love him. In some ways, he wasn't very lovable until he died on the gallows. And the gallows made him heroic, at least to some people. And it made him all but the devil to others. There are catalytic events in history, that is, events around which ideas, forces, movements, problems coalesce. Unfortunately, they often have a lot to do with violence. And we'll come back to this point at the end today. 
But John Brown was far, 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 far more important dead than he'd ever been alive. Poets, songwriters, lyricists, biographers, those who would come to love him, those who would come to hate him, and those who cannot quite figure out what to do with him would never stop writing about him, and we still haven't. And we're in the midst right now of a John Brown biography revival. That's in part because next year is the 150th anniversary of the Harper's Ferry Raid. Almost all major African-American poets in the 20th century attempted their John Brown poem. So did Stephen Vincent Benet in a famous and classic lyric epic poem called John Brown's Body, published in the 1920s. And embedded in that poem is this verse where Benet, I think, captured the dilemma of John Brown. John Brown's not easy to decide. Was he a heroic revolutionary or a midnight terrorist? This is Benet's verse embedded in a 250-page epic poem. The law is our yardstick, and it measures well, or well enough, when there are yards to measure. Measure a wave with it. Measure fire. Cut sorrow up in inches. Weigh content. You can weigh John Brown's body well enough, but how and in what balance do you weigh John Brown? He had no gift for life, no gift to bring life, but his body and a cutting edge. And he knew how to die. More on old John Brown coming up. The year before John Brown's raid, the most important the most exhilarating and by far the most substantively interesting political debates in American history would occur in Illinois. When Abraham Lincoln runs for the U.S. Senate against Stephen Douglas, Stephen Douglas, same Stephen Douglas, author of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, parliamentarian genius of the Compromise of 1850, the man most associated with the Democratic Party's theory of popular sovereignty for Kansas and Nebraska and the whole of the West, and this guy, Abe Lincoln, with one term in the U.S. House of Representatives and then a failed attempt at re-election, a guy with very little experience when he ran for president, in the opening of his campaign, he decided to open it in the legislative hall of the old state house in Illinois. On the outside steps of that state house where Barack Obama began his campaign almost exactly a year ago. But inside, Lincoln gave his now famous House Divided speech. Now, in your reader, your Lincoln reader, edited by Mike Johnson, you have the House Divided speech, but read past the first page. Don't just read that first lyrical, biblical paragraph. Read what Lincoln goes on to argue. The speech is about the Dred Scott decision. 
the speeches, it's opposition to the Dred Scott, to the Supreme Court case that had just been passed the year before. His speeches, his opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act. His speech is a warning. It's the warning of a moderate Republican, but nevertheless a moderate anti-slavery free soil Republican who throws down the gauntlet. In the wake of Dred Scott, this is a sentence on the fifth page of the House Divided speech. Page 68 in your reader, if you look it up. We shall lie down soon, said Abraham Lincoln, pleasantly dreaming that the people of Missouri are on the verge of making their state free. And we shall awake the next morning to the reality instead that the Supreme Court has made Illinois a slave state. Get his drift. Dred Scott decision, in his view, and the view now of most in this new, extraordinary coalition, the Republican Party, believe the Dred Scott decision now threatens everybody, north, south, and west, with the presence of slavery and slave labor and all that goes with it. It's the opening of that speech, though, of course, that the world always remembers. And we love to return to this in our political culture and our political history Whenever we feel great polarization and great division, are we a house divided again against ourselves? If we could first know where we are and whither we are tending, this is so Lincoln. He kind of meanders in a bit of a homespun way into a very serious argument. We could then better judge what to do and how to do it. We are now far into the fifth year since a policy was initiated in Kansas, Nebraska with the avowed object and confident promise of putting an end to the slavery agitation. Under the operation of that policy, that agitation has not only not ceased, but has constantly augmented. In my opinion, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Southerners never forgot that sentence. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in a course of ultimate <coughs> extinction. And those two words, more than anything else, Lincoln had uttered before the Civil War, Southern Democrats would never forget. Or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Have we no tendency to the latter condition? Let anyone who doubts carefully contemplate that now almost complete legal combination, piece of machinery, so to speak, and here he's arguing the slave power conspiracy without naming it, compounded of the Nebraska doctrine and the Dred Scott decision, let him consider not only what work the machinery is adapted to do, 
and how the machinery and how well adapted but also let him study the history of its construction and trace if he can or rather fail if he can to trace the evidences of design and concert of action among its chief bosses from the beginning. It's all there. The Republican Party coalition of ideas and fears is all there. Well, what was everybody so angry about over the Dred Scott decision? It's just a Supreme Court decision. Well, I left you the other day hanging in abeyance. Dred Scott was, as I said, a, an old, old man by the time this thing finally got, before the, got on the docket in 1854, finally was argued in late 1856 and early 1857. And when the court brought down its decision, literally two days, I believe, 48 hours after the inauguration of James Buchanan as president in 1857, his case was now, his name would now become almost a household word across the country. Now, a measure of how important this case was as it was developing largely in legal secrecy was the kind of lawyers who argued it. Montgomery Blair and George Tickner Curtis for Scott. Montgomery Blair was the famous Blair family from Missouri. Ant, moderate anti-slavery leaning Republicans by this point in time. Member of Congress, George Tickner Curtis, a former Attorney General, a very important, famous trial lawyer. And for the government, another former U.S. Attorney General, Reverdy Johnson, and a U.S. Senator, Henry Geyer, were the lawyers. Reverdy Johnson made the startling statements in the arguments before the Supreme Court and called for a pronoun He made startling statements and he called for a broader pronouncement from the court. He urged Justice Taney, the Chief Justice, and the court to render a big decision here and try once and for all to put this, as Lincoln called it, slavery agitation, this whole slavery in the Western Territories problem to rest. The Supreme Court, after all, is supreme. Reverdy Johnson said, I quote him, this is a case that shall determine whether slavery shall live forever. Forever. Whether preservation of slavery was the only way to preserve the Union. The decision came on the 6th of March, 1857, and here was the decision. Tawney and the majority in the court did not have to go as far as they did. This is now legendary and famous of Tawney er developing his majority, and it was ultimately a 6-3 to three decision. Unless you think the Supreme Court doesn't really matter in our political history, please remember the Dred Scott decision. Number one, part of the, there were three parts of the decision. The first was jurisdiction. Did Dred Scott, as a black person, have the right to sue? That's just the first question they were asked to, to settle. The right to sue for anything in a federal court. Could a non-citizen, because he was a Negro, which is the language used then, 
sue in federal court. Two, did Scott's residence on free soil, remember his four years with Dr. Emerson, his former owner from 1834 to 1838, living in Minnesota territory, did his residence on free soil entitle him to freedom? Or, if a slave was taken by his owner to free states or free territories, was it the law of the state the master came from that always had jurisdiction? In other words, was it the law of Missouri that took precedent here or the law of Minnesota? And the third question before the court, they didn't have to take this one up, but they sure did. Was Congress's right to determine slavery in the Western territories? The pressures on the court were tremendous, as I said, to move for a broad decision, to try to put this thing to rest. Well, the decision, of course, six to three. And at that point, there were five southern-born justices, five either slaveholders or former slaveholders on the Supreme Court. The sixth judge who voted with them was Greer of Pennsylvania, forming a majority against the three northern-born justices who voted against it. The decision was, one, Scott had no right to sue in a federal court. Two, his residence on free soil did not give him his freedom. The law of Missouri was in place. And third, and by far most important, the court ruled, trying to put to rest now nearly 40 years of this problem that had been compromised this way and compromised that way and argued with that principle and that principle and that principle, as we've seen. It ruled that Congress had no authority to exclude slavery from any U.S. territory because it would be just, as Southerners have been arguing now for two generations, a violation of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, a person's right to life, liberty, and property. If someone ever wants to doubt that American history is about its ironies, just note that language. Therefore, the Missouri Compromise line, that so-called sacred pledge that had now been violated, said Northerners in the Kansas-Nebraska Act, had never been constitutional to begin with. That any attempt to prevent slavery's expansion anywhere would be unconstitutional. Now, Taney not only went that far, but in his opinion, in his own written opinion, he famously went a step further, and he argued, or he said, quote, that blacks, or Negroes, is the word he used, had for, I'm quoting, had for more than a century been regarded as beings of an inferior order, so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Um, some of the most infamous words ever in an American Supreme Court decision. Now, the decision 6-3 to three was issued for this new Republican Party coalition in the North. In some ways this was horrible news, in some ways it was good political news because nothing crystallized this Republican coalition now quite like this case. 
they will crystallize in resistance to it, as I just tried to demonstrate from quoting from Lincoln's famous House Divided speech. But most importantly here, I'd argue, I mean, the hook to hang your hat on here is that the Dred Scott decision is not once and for all. The war is not necessarily now inevitable. Contingencies are always there. They're always laying there to happen. But what the Dred Scott decision did almost once and for all is that it destroyed compromise. It destroyed almost any conception now of consensus or compromise. Or put another way, it ruined moderation. Moderate politicians, former Democrats like David Wilmot from Pennsylvania, racist to the core, but free soiler, who's joined the Republican Party. Abraham Lincoln of Illinois. Uh, got his own racial problems, but a much more advanced sort of anti-slavery thinker, but still a moderate. He didn't like abolitionists. He'd never been a member of an abolitionist society and never would be. Believed there were constitutional restraints on what Congress could actually do about slavery. But it will bring together now some strange bedfellows in this Republican coalition who cannot find anymore any middle ground with their foes. And that's when you see danger. You, see, you more than see danger in American political history. It's when the side that loses a debate cannot accept the result. Now, there are many ways to try to demonstrate the importance of that Dred Scott case as it sunk in. Now, it's sinking in now in the summer of 1857 as a depression hits the country. Wages in, America, north, in northern cities like New York, Boston, Philadelphia, and so on, drop 40 and 50 percent in six months. The estimate is that 100,000 workers in New York City were thrown out of work by the end of 1857. About 50,000 in Philadelphia. The prices of wheat go plummeting practically overnight. The United States had one of its first significant stock market crashes. So there's a lot to be feared here. And on both sides of this, north and south, they're going to blame each other. Southerners are going to blame Northerners for overspeculation, for the overissuing of credit by banks. And, of course, they're right about that. There were no controls on banks in these years. There was no Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. You only got that from the New Deal in the 20th century. And Northerners are going to blame Southerners because of their belief in King Cotton and this kind of dependence on a single export. They're going to throw blame all over the place. If you were African-American, you now lived in the land of the Dred Scott decision, which had said what? It said, you will never be a citizen of the United States. You have no rights, which the white man has to respect, which means the white man's constitution, which means the white man's society. It means you live in the land of the Dred Scott decision that said you have no future in the United States. In the wake of the Dred Scott case, about a month after it, Frederick Douglass gave a speech which was a bit uncustomary for him. Uh, in the 1850s, Frederick Douglass was learning his politics. He really was, learn he was 
getting his feet as a political thinker and even as a politician. He was trying to sidle up to this Republican Party, even though it was a, kind of a half-baked loaf of bread to him. It wasn't real abolitionism. This case drove him further into their laps, but he gave a speech largely to a black audience in the wake of Dred Scott. And so typical of Douglass's brilliance as an orator, he started to discuss how he saw fear on the horizon and trouble and dread on the horizon. And he said he saw what he called the manifold discouragements of my people everywhere I go. I quote him, they fling their broad and gloomy shadows across the pathway of every thoughtful colored man in this country. And then he ended with this lament. I see them. These are discouragements. I see them clearly and feel them sadly with an earnest, aching heart. I have long looked for the realization of the hope of my people, standing as it were, barefoot and treading upon the sharp and flinty rocks of the present and looking out upon the boundless sea of the future. I have sought in my humble way to penetrate the intervening mists and clouds and perchance to see in the distance of time at which the cruel bondage of my people should somehow end and the long entombed millions rise from their foul grave of slavery and death. But of that time, I can now know nothing and you can know nothing and all is uncertain at this point. I walk by faith and not by sight. That's Douglas's beautiful and terrible way of expressing that he's now told as an African American, you have no future in the United States. All right. So who was John Brown? Um, that picture, I'm going to show you just a couple images here. John Brown, of course, uh, has been a fascination for artists, to say the least. I don't want to take too much time with this, but this is a black and white version. I, hope, I don't know if you can see the rope up here. This is one of the 22 panels in Jacob Lawrence's magnificent series on John Brown. Jacob Lawrence, a great African-American painter, he painted this in the 1930s. And at least 20 of the 22 images in Lawrence's incredible series on John Brown, you will find some image of a crucifix, of execution, a hanging, when I was teaching at Amherst College, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, we had Jacob Lawrence for an honorary degree. And I got to spend like two days with him. It was one of the greatest thrills of my life. And uh, the museum at Amherst managed to get the, the series on John Brown. They had it in a room. And I was asked to do a gallery talk on it. And so I went into the room the day before I was to give this talk all by myself, nobody in there. And I just communed with these terrible images. Sometimes the images sort of crisscross bayonets and sometimes crisscross rifles and sometimes it's literally crosses on the wall in rooms and sometimes it's this image, brown hanging. 
And I was overwhelmed by it. And the next day I gave this talk and I talked about these images of crucifixes. What they hadn't told me is that they were also inviting a busload of fifth graders to come to the lecture. And they also hadn't told me that that morning in the New York Times, in the headline, today this wouldn't even get headlines, there'd been a bus bombing in Jerusalem and 38 people were slaughtered in a bus by a terrorist bomb. And I was going to talk about John Brown, whether he was a terrorist. And in walked the fifth graders. Toughest, one of the toughest audiences I ever had. How do you smooth over John Brown and all those crucifixes? With fifth graders on a field trip. Don't even try, is the answer. Another favorite image of mine of John Brown is David Levine's. David Levine is the artist for the New York Review of Books. This actually comes from 1969. A series of books had come out in John Brown. And, I mean, this is an image that kind of fits John Brown to many people. The gun-slinging, you know, kind of <clears throat> wild man. Red face, probably, big nose, gun belt, bullets all around him, kind of saying, don't mess with me. But then, of course, there's Thomas Hovenden's incredible painting of John Brown, which hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Um, I don't have the full version of it. This is the painting that depicts the scene of John Brown leaving his jail cell in Charlestown, Virginia on the day of his execution. According to the artist, with the hangman's noose already around his neck before he even rode to the gallows, that uh, details. And a black woman comes up with her baby and ra raises her baby to John Brown and he kisses the child. It's the legend of the kiss, as John Greenleaf Whittier put it in a poem. That didn't happen, but in art, anything can happen. This is the gentle savior, John Brown. This is the liberator, John Brown. This is the martyr, John Brown. There are many, many, many John Browns. And you're going to start hearing about and seeing a lot more of them next year. Um... Oh, gosh, is that backward? No, I guess that's not bad. You can't see that very well, but so be it. Well, John Brown was uh, born in Connecticut, uh, Torrington to be exact, and just a ways up the road. Um, he's born in 1800. He grew up mostly out in the Western Reserve, as it was called, of Ohio. He witnessed at the age of 12 the beating of a slave boy. There were remnants of slaves still traversing the north in the 18-teens. He tried divinity school for a little while at the age of 16, but said he quit because of insufficient funds and because all the reading caused him sore eyes. He experienced a confession of faith in his father's church, a congregational, old-fashioned Calvinist congregational church when he was about 16. He married first in 1820. His first wife would die on him. He had no less than 20 children by two wives over some 30 years. 
Nine of those children would die in infancy. From 1820 to 1855, he engaged in approximately 20 different business ventures of one kind and another in six different northern states, virtually all of which ended in failure and poverty for his family, several of which ended in lawsuits and bankruptcies and one litigation after another, one of which led to debtor's prison for a while. He and his family had lived a poverty-stricken, rolling stone existence across the northern states. Probably what sustained him, and we know a good deal about this, was his religion, his faith, his theology, if you want. He was a kind of orthodox 19th century Calvinist. He believed in such things as innate depravity, providential designs, predestination on some level and the total human dependence on a sovereign and arbitrary God, and an arbitrary God that sometimes chose certain individual human beings in history to act for him. He believed in an Old Testament kind of justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He punished his children and his employees with mosaic vengeance. He had a puritanical obsession with the wickedness of other people, he could be domineering, vain, obstinate, as one friend once put it, impervious to a joke. Probably not a lot of fun to just have lunch with. He gave orders, remembered Brown's younger brother, quote, like a king against whom there is no rising up. He was a thoroughgoing nonconformist. He probably never joined any formal anti-slavery organization, although he went to lots of their meetings. He never joined a political party. And we're not even sure if he ever voted. He was a practitioner of what would become known in these years, by, certainly by the 1850s, of a kind of higher law doctrine about slavery and allegiance to God's will and God's law above man's law. To John Brown, put simply, slavery represented an unjustifiable state of war by one portion of the people against another. And in a state of war, you do what's necessary to defend yourselves. He believed slavery was, was an evil so entrenched, and he was dead serious about this, so entrenched in America that it required revolutionary ideology and revolutionary means to eradicate it. And it led him, as it has often in history led most proponents of revolutionary violence, that the means can therefore justify the ends. As God had willed so often in his Old Testament that the wicked must die, so too had he willed that slaveholders and their defenders at least deserve the same fate. John Brown came to believe that violence in a righteous cause was like a rite of purification. Now, what did he do? In brief, John Brown's 
interest in Kansas was intense after the Kansas-Nebraska Act. He was living then, by then, in upstate New York, uh, up near what is today Lake Placid, North Elba, which is indeed where he is buried. Five of Brown's sons went west to Kansas in late 1854 and early 1855. There's an extraordinary exchange of letters between a couple of those sons, especially Owen Brown and his father back in New York, letters that are saying things like, Father, you must come out here with us. There are slaveholders living over on such and such a creek within two miles of us, Father. Violence is beginning to break out, Father. And so the father came. And John Brown developed in Kansas by early 1855, uh, by late 1855 and into 1856, his own little guerrilla band. They had gone to Kansas to fight in Kansas's border war. Now, I mentioned the other day that it was, on, it was in the spring of 1856. Brown and his men are traveling along a roadway and they get word of the beating of Charles Sumner on the floor of the Senate. I think it was first told to them that Sumner was all but dead. This, to him, great abolitionist senator. And Brown, it appears, went into a frenzy and vowed revenge. And a couple of days later, he and four of his sons, or three of his sons, uh, went and did visitations at three houses along Pottawatomie Creek in eastern Kansas, known to be an area settled by slaveholders or pro-slavery people. And they dragged several men from their houses in front of their wives and hacked them to death, five men to be exact, hacked them to death with these huge broadswords and deposited their bodies on the front steps of their cabins. This was the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre. It touched off even greater violence in bleeding Kansas throughout that summer into the fall of 1856. To John Brown, he had kind of tried to even the score because just a, few, a couple weeks before that, pro-slavery forces had sacked, attacked, and burned the anti-slavery capital of Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, burned a hotel and killed six people. Brown, by killing five, said he hadn't quite evened it up. He spent the summer of 1856 in hiding into the fall. In October 1856, he left Kansas and went back east to launch what became the Harper's Ferry Conspiracy. And I, in legal terms, that's exactly what it was. He launched a fundraising campaign to finance a new and more daring attempt to take this war, as he put it, into Africa. By that he meant the South. It was his hope of attacking ultimately the largest federal arsenal in the United States, which was at Harpers Ferry, Virginia, at the confluence of the Shenandoah and Potomac Rivers just some 30, 40 miles from Washington, D.C., capture that largest federal arsenal with its thousands of rifles and sidearms and barrels of gunpowder, and apparently launch a growing, developing slave insurrection 
down through Virginia. And it was his hope, at least, the best we can understand, to engage in, in effect, a violent coup d'etat and take over the state of Virginia. Now, to make a long and dramatic story short enough, his fundraising campaign by 1857 fell by the way, in part because of the Panic of 1857. But he visited all over the North. He visited the parlors of many famous abolitionists in New England. He sat in Ralph Waldo Emerson's study. People hosted dinners for him. He was this fascinating, romantic, somewhat bizarre old man with, with hair that was whitening and had been out there in Kansas raising hell. They didn't all know the details of the Pottawatomie Creek Massacre, and even when they began to hear them, they didn't want to know too much. But Brown was leading a crusade in Kansas to keep Kansas free soil. Brown was doing in Kansas what a lot of these abolitionists back east could not themselves do, but they were glad he was doing it. He began to raise some money for him. He came down here to Connecticut and he ordered some 200, excuse me, 1,000 spears. He called them pikes from, a, for, from a, a forgery, which were ultimately delivered in boxes to a farm near Harper's Ferry, labeled famously Beecher's Bibles, huge, heavy boxes <laughs> labeled Bibles. And then he went back west. He established a headquarters in Tabor, Iowa, a town known to be settled by abolitionists from the east, a place where he could begin to recruit men and train them. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, an extensive uh, examination into the legacy of John Brown and also the historical uh, context, uh, looking back at the Missouri Compromise, the Missouri, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the Dred Scott decision, and other issues. And uh, that's going to conclude our program for today. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to uh, close out our program with the music of uh, Duke Ellington and John Coltrane uh, from a recording uh, done in 1963. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.